Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. The unretirement of America. Bad news, the unretirement of America. And you've heard of Dog the Bounty Hunter? Well, now we have FINRA the Bounty Hunter, uh, according to one financial advisor who's uh, getting in trouble by FINRA and he's fighting back. We'll talk about that because that's got some interesting uh, ramifications. And then if you were a client at Wells Fargo, did you get ripped off? They're getting uh, fined for $35 million for excessive fees. So if you're a Wells Fargo uh, uh, customer and you've got, uh, you know, you've got a money manager over at Wells Fargo, you just may want to check and, and, and review the fees that you're getting. But the big topic, and we're going to get to that real soon, is the banking is now back in front and center on the front pages, especially with Powell uh, uh, in um, – um, uh, Wyoming. Where is he, Don? Um, uh, Jackson Hole. There he is. Jackson Hole. He's in yep. Jackson Hole. And so it's back front and center, commercial real estate and the banking and recession fears. And that's kind of taken front and center stage and kind of knocked AI and NVIDIA kind of a little bit of a second seat, at least for a day or two. So the big question is, is the economy and the banking and commercial real estate sector going to the on the bearish side going to drag the markets down or will the euphoria with ai and this new fresh um um efficiency is that in the tech sector is that going to propel the markets higher we're going to dive really deep into that uh but first let's talk about the unretirement of america so it's a very quick article by the way all the articles are in the show notes if you want to go look um and, and read those but basically there's a new article that half Half of older Americans are now considering unretirement, coming out of retirement, or delaying retirement. They had a word for that too. I can't find it, but um, and so they're going to push retirement out further. A lot of them said it was just because they wanted intellectual stimulus. However, I feel that a few of those people probably just don't want to admit they're concerned about finances. But literally half of them said they were worried about running out of money. So now retiring, it's not just Social Security that's ratcheting up the age before you get full benefits. People on their own are start ratcheting up when they retire because it's it's just going to be too tough. Now, this is very interesting. This financial advisor who was getting um, attacked by FINRA for some uh, private equity deals he was doing, he basically fought back and said, well, F- FINRA claims to be a private corporation with no constitutional responsibilities. However, it acts with constitutional authority and is, is, is well, apparent authority. It's, in other words, they don't really have authority. It hadn't been given to them uh, by vote by either the executive or constitutional branch, and there was no separation of powers. He's saying they're acting like a regulatory, a, a, a governmental body, but they're claiming they're a private organization. So he's trying to say they don't, they're, they're a little bit out of there. Now, this has wide-ranging um, effects because there's lots of regulatory bodies that are, are might be doing being a little bit aggressive and actually doing uh, making regulations that they quite frankly don't have um, technically they don't have the authority to do so, but they do it anyway. So that's going to be interesting. I don't, I think Finner is going to prevail, but it's an interesting article. Now let's get down to the nitty gritty. Okay. Uh, 
And this is an article, by the way, this was sent also in the mailbag. And uh, the article was, the mailbag says, hi, Dan, just wanted your opinion since so far they've been pretty on the money. He's talking about Seeking Alpha. It really depends on who you're getting at Seeking Alpha. Calling on bank failures well advanced, maybe for the podcast. Me, I said, thank you for sending. We will discuss on the show. And here we are. We're going to discuss it on the show. But right before we do that, let's do the rest of the mailbag because that is apropos. We got quite a few questions on, on um, T-bills and ETFs and safe money, you know, like your money market funds. Uh, and it says, good morning, Dan. I have a Schwab fund, S-N-O-X-X, mostly treasuries. It's actually all treasuries, I think. Would you consider this a safe investment or is there some hidden risk I'm not aware of? Sox is extremely safe and composed of treasury bills. The only thing safer, theoretically, is owning T-bills outright rather than a pro rata pool of the T-bills. So with this mutual fund, you actually own the underlying um, uh, pro rata share of the underlying T-bills. And because the, the uh, uh, Treasury... The Fed actually owns the printing press. They don't have any bankruptcy risk. They can just print the money and pay the thing off. Now, it could be inflationary. In other words, you don't know what your purchasing power with those dollars will be. So risk-free, nothing. Nothing is risk-free. Okay, second one. And I'll pull Don on this one in a little bit. So Don, uh, uh, get ready. Hello, Revere Asset. Which is the best T-bill for a risk-free return? Is it T-Flow, T-F-L-O, or S-Gov, S-G-O-V, or Bill, B-I-L? Those are all different uh, T-bill um, uh, ETFs. Don, they, they basically appear the same, but we'll dig a little deeper and update on the podcast. We've used SHV and Bill in the past. Um, M.A., Thank you, Don. It seems T-Flow has a higher yield currently at 5.3%. Uh, Roy Maddox mentioned it on Twitter. He's using it in his IBD fund. Don, Bill currently yields 538 uh, With yields so close, expense ratios also need to be considered as well as how long they take to pay their dividend. Uh, MA T flow has a 3.24 nav, uh, versus S Jeff 3.04. Would you consider T flow better, uh, nav total of high? And Don said the highest net return is preferred MA. What is the highest net return? So many numbers. It's hard to decipher. And which one is the highest net return in your opinion? Don, and this is key. We will update on the podcast. Here's the gold nugget, folks. This is more important than whether you're getting five basis points or 10 basis points more on one fund or another. There is little difference between them. The important thing is not to let idle cash sit earning nothing. So, folks, when I have a T bill, when I've got a, we do fixed income accounts for clients that just want a fixed income T bill portfolio. We charge a lot less for those. They're fixed income only. And, um, um, as soon as a T-bill comes due, I get an alert. And that very day that T-bill comes due, I've already rolled it into another T-bill. So there may be one day of, of non-overlap, but there's hardly any. If that T-bill matures and then you let it sit there for two weeks before you roll it into the next T-bill paying 5.38, well, now you just lost 20 or 30 basis points just by not keeping things tight together. So Don is very right on that. Okay. So do you want to add any on that, Don, or is that pretty good? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. But first, Dan, Zach, can you show the, the screen? Dan, you see that number there? Seven, baby. Seven. Do you know what that is? Big seven tech this stocks? Month, huh? No. Oh. This month. Well, yeah, it could, that's ironic. That It could be that. This month is the seventh anniversary of the creation of Revere Asset Management. Wow. Wow. Hey, look at that. Congrats. Well, we renamed it. We were we spun off and renamed it. Yes, we wow. renamed it. We spun off. That's yeah. yes, we did not yeah. own it before that. So yeah. uh, yes. Yes, that's true. Now. And for can you believe it's been seven years? That flew by. Yep. Been 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 a wild ride. Wild ride. All right. So I think that Dan hit the nail on the head with his comment 
which was echoing my comment is that just pick one, get in it. Um, I actually mon took a look at these several times this week and depending on which day you look, the, the seven day uh, yield varies. It pops up, it pops down by a couple of hundredths of a percent and the return if you look at them uh, varies by a couple of hundredths of a percent. And the, it, the bottom line is really just get your money into one of them. SNOXX or TFLOW, SGOV, Bill or SHV. The difference being SNOXX is a steady, uh, it, it's priced at $1 consistently. And yeah. the middle of the following month, you get the interest credited to your account for the length of time and the amount that you've owned SNOXX. The other four climb up little by little on their uh, price until the end of the month. And then the first of the month, you see a big drop down in the price and that reflects the distribution. And then you wait one to two weeks to get uh, your money. So your account's gonna show uh, a, a mild deficit while that uh, price gaps down until you're waiting for the money to be delivered. No different than uh, how a dividend on an individual stock uh, affects uh, when a stock goes X div, how it gaps down the corresponding amount while you're waiting for your dividend. Uh, I still like uh, buying individual T-bills the best and really good at that, but that's using our uh, software at the custodians to to handle that. But that's mainly the difference between SNOXX. It's a, it's a $1 consistent uh, money market mutual fund. The others are ETFs where you see the increment uh, go up slightly every day and then it'll drop at the beginning of each month while you wait for your dividend payout. So that really is uh, the bottom line. There are a couple of other ones, ICSH and G-Bill, which are not ultra short term. They're more six month to a year, uh, but those are some other uh, options. And it, it depends on where the sweet spot is for the yield. Dan's really good at identifying that also. Yeah, those 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 six to six months to a year are probably slightly lower yield than the ones that are up to six months. The sweet spot is right around six months. Six, seven months. Right. And then it starts going down. Yeah. So, so. And the other thing is on the funds, you, they, they, because like you said, Don, they kind of slightly vary. What happens is they'll get a big treasury come due and they get paid and then they got to go buy a new fund and they kind of do a ladder. So you kind of get an averaged return and it's a little bit lower than if you buy individual T-bills because you can pick the highest one in that fourth month, the highest one in that fifth month, and you can be more precise and you, it, you don't get that averaging effect. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, pick one. Don't don't get 0.01% in your savings account in your at your credit union. And here's one other thing that you got to remember. So he said, sounds good, Von. Look forward to the mailbox this week. And then he made a comment. I just bought some T-Flow and noticed it had a commission to buy, but SGov and Bill did not have any commission to buy. Folks, it depends. Yeah, that's interesting. We, we've never paid. We haven't bought T-Flow, uh, but we haven't uh, ever paid a commission when we bought Bill or SHV. Yeah, you just got to be careful, folks, because depending on whether you're on the retail side or the institutional side, because the institutional side can get better deals or better trades sometimes. It, there, there's more offerings than on the retail side. But the point is, some funds may have a no commission or no transaction fee, and some might. It depends on your custodian and your particular deal. And so when you're talking about 5%, you're not talking about a lot of money. A $25 transaction fee on a mutual fund or a, or a, a commission on an ETF can eat up quite a bit of that interest. It doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it can. It, it is. Okay. So we got those two out of the way. Oh, this is my this is my favorite one, Don. You will soon find out why. Hi, Dan. Yeah. I have beard envy. You're looking good in the podcast with that beard, buddy. <laughs> I had to shave. I shaved it. Now I just got the mustache and the goatee. But thanks, CS. All right. Two questions. We find ourselves happily living on 60K a year. We're not pitching pennies, just not a whole lot of envision. We walk for our groceries in the cafes. They're, they actually moved uh, somewhere else to live a nice retirement. Uh, so we don't have or want anything. At some point, we may want to buy a car. We may travel. 
Um, the only taxable income is our Social Security IRA withdraws and whatever capital gains dividends you, you produce more taxable accounts. Um, this year, it looks like our, 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 our taxes will be zero. Um, um, I'd like to set up a monthly drip from our investment account uh, 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 to meet our monthly expenses. I prefer to tap the IRA in these small amounts and save the taxable accounts for big one-time draws. Question. Tax perspective, which accounts should we tax, taxable or an IRA? Do you have an opinion? If we tap the two, second question, if we tap the IRA, what is a way to get funds without paying the 10% tax withholdings? That's the tax withholdings you set up on the account. It's not the tax rate on an IRA. That's a, you could set it at 10%, 15%, 20%. He said, in the past, I was able to check the box, tell me I did not want any taxes to withhold during this TD swap merger. They're having some issues there, but you, you can get them to set zero if you want. Anyway, of course it'll all get netted out at the year end, but thanks. Uh, and keep the beard. Sorry, CS. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for the uh, kind words, especially about my styling beard. The answers to your question are as follows. It depends on your tax situation, potential future required minimum distributions on your IRA, thoughts on your income levels in your in the future, etc. But the point is, with almost zero taxes, you can withdraw from an IRA and you can set your tax withholdings at zero. These decisions, whether you take to an IRA individual joint or Roth, are not mutually exclusive. And therefore, you could do some combination thereof and split the middle, so to speak. So, folks, if you need some advice on where to take the monies from, that is a very individual uh, decision. Uh, reach out to me and we can go. Okay. You can set your own withholding level, but, I, but it should match the quarter you pulled it from. Therefore, if you took a large RMD or taxable distribution early in the year, like January through March, first quarter, you should probably make a quarterly estimate so you won't have interest in penalties. So, folks, if you take money out in January and then you don't pay that tax withholding on the money for till April 15th of the next year, they're going to hit you. If you're in the fourth quarter, that's fine. You can wait till April 15th. But if you're in the first few quarters, they expect you to withhold uh, the pro rata portion of that if it's not equal. OK, now I said you should probably make a quarterly estimate uh, so you don't pay penalties. They had to systematize the forms at TD during the merger and they will turn to normalcy. But now we can adjust before the merger if necessary. Um, so that's that one. Uh, this is another one. Dan KP, congrats on reaching empty nest phase. From our experience, it's not really any easier, more mental now, but hope yours is wonderful. Question, can I remove Roth money between Roth accounts penalty-free? In other words, if you have a couple different Roth accounts with different strategies. Um, um, let me see. Uh, I said, uh, thank you. Uh, it will be an adjustment, the empty nester. Uh, it is kind. It is kind of nice coming home and not having to prepare anything for dinner for a bunch of kids. And it's time you can just kind. You, it's nice you can just relax. Anyway, the answer to your question is absolutely if done correctly. You want to do a custodian to custodian direct transfer rollover. If you are at the same brokerage, you can simply do a journal request. If you otherwise, you use a transfer form. If you do a sixty-day rollover where you actually take custody of the money. They're going to issue a 1099-R for a distribution, and then you've got to roll that money back in within 60 days. So if you have a car wreck and the check's in your glove box and it's 61 days, the whole thing's taxable. And if you're under 59 and a half, now you have penalties. But people borrow money out of their IRA and then roll it back in with 60 days, and they use it for short-term loans. The IRS got sick of that, and they said, no more. You can only do it one time a year. So if you're doing a 60-day rollover from one custodian to another and you're going to take money, a direct custody, and then roll it to the next custodian, you can only do that once per year per 12-month rolling period for an IRA or a Roth. So once you do it, you can't do it again. But if you do a rollover where you're going from one account to another directly from the custodian, you can do that multiple times. That's not an issue. So, uh, but you got to do it right. Um, one other thing, if you are planning on doing a 60-day rollover, this isn't in the, I'm just 
ad libbing here. You want to make sure you set your tax withholding at zero because they'll do it whatever the tax withholding rate is defaulted on. So if you're planning on doing a 60-day rollover and you got 20% tax withholding left, they're going to send 20% to the IRS. You're not going to be able to get it back. You're going to have to come out of pocket 20% to roll over the whole 100% within 60 days. So you got to make sure you do it right. Okay. Now, um, then he said, thanks, Dan. Very helpful. I see Mr. Fun in fundamentals. Michael Ramos was copied on this email thread. I really appreciate, I really appreciate his contribution to the podcast. Have a good transition, Dan. Uh, me. I'm training Michael uh, for the little nuances, restrictions, and rules our benefit be, uh, benevolent leaders place on us. Uh, thanks for the input. Then Michael answered, thank KS. Thank you for the kind, kind for you to mention. I find the best way to learn is by teaching, and I'm glad that you are enjoying the fundamentals. Regards, Michael Ramos. And speaking of that, we actually are going to start a new little segment. So Michael's going to take a little one fundamental metric every week and do a very quick segment and explain that fundamental and why it's, and we're only taking the important ones. They've got 400 fundamentals, only about 20 of them are worth a damn. You didn't hear me say that. Uh, it's true. Anyway, um, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to go over that. And we're also going to do a, a little YouTube short. We're going to put it on our YouTube channel. So if you remember you're driving and you don't take notes, you can just go to the YouTube channel and you can see that little YouTube link. And then actually pretty soon he's actually going to do an, uh, well, it could be an hour, could be 45 minutes, however long it takes. He's going to do a top to bottom, how to analyze a company from beginning to end, how he actually goes through the steps and what he does and how he pulls the reports, looks at the footnotes, in the statement of cash flows, income statement, balance sheet, and how he goes down. So for you stock nerds that are really into that, Mike's going to use his big brain and show you his uh, cerebralness. That's another sniglet I made up from the old Tim days. Um, um, and we're going to go from there. So before we go to Don in the markets and get into the deep dive of is recession coming and is banking and the commercial real estate bearish side going to trump the IA technology side and how do you manage that? But first, we're going to go to Michael. So, Michael, you are going to talk about ROE, return on equity, and why that's so important. Mike? All right. We're going to go straight into the fundamentals. Um, so, yeah, super excited about the new uh, the new little show we're going to do or I'm going to do once a week. That small, short, sort of one to between two and three minute videos that that I go through these fundamental topics. So really, really excited to start doing. Speak to go into a little more detail on the show. I will be this in a video, making a short. But here on the podcast, I'll go into a little more detail and describe. And that's return on equity. This week on the podcast, I want to talk about ROE, which is a number that every stock market investor should know. And I want to talk about how. To Interpreted and what it really means. So, as you may have noticed, Market Smith, if you pull up a weekly chart, you can see that there's a little box where it has the EPS growth rate, you've got earnings stability and PE, and then towards the bottom of it, there's also a little percentage that you can see, and it's called return on equity. So, for example, Lululemon, here you can see that return on equity number is 44%. So, let's take a look at Lululemon. What is that return of equity? return equity of 44% mean. And what this means is that if you take what Lulu earned over the last 12 months and you were to subtract all the expenses, the equity capital in the company generated a 44% return. Now with Lulu, there's something special that I want you to notice and take a look at their level of debt. And you can see that slightly below the ROE. And that debt says NA. And what that NA means is that they don't have any debt. They've got zero debt. Take a look at their balance sheet, their 10Ks. They've got no debt. So if you've got a company with no debt and an ROE of 44%, that means that all the capital that's been invested in the company comes from equity. 
and there's no debt, AKA leverage. So a company is able to do a few things with that money, with that return on their equity. They can pay it out in dividends, they can buy back shares, or they can retain it in the business to either reinvest or make acquisitions. What the company does with these earnings depends on the type of company and industry it's in and what their reinvestment opportunities are. So this is a way that you as a shareholder can determine how well management is allocating capital. Now, I wanna take, uh, take a second to talk about the most critical thing when looking at any financial metric, and that's the fact that it's all backwards looking. So here you've got an equity number, that's in the last 12 months. So what you'd have to do is go back even further, check over the last 10 years and see what that trend on return on equity is, how it compares, and that can maybe give you some insights to the future, but just because a company earns a high return on equity today does not mean that it will continue to earn those high rates going forward. And what you as an investor need to figure out is what opportunities does the company have going forward to continue generating those high returns? How good is management at finding these returns? So that's where you need to actually look into the board, look at the CEO, look at management and see how competent they are and how able they are to generate those consistently high returns. And this isn't something that I can talk about in a 10 minute podcast or on a three minute video. If you're really interested in capital allocation and management, I mean, you can, you can go do an MBA and learn it, or there's a lot of great books written on the subject, but that's, that's really dense material and it takes, it, there's a lot of nuance and it's, it's not straightforward at all. But what you can do is a way to gauge it is through that return on equity, see what they've done in the past, go to a 10K from 10 years ago and see what they laid out as their strategy and then look at updates, look at 10Ks every year uh, after that and see if they're executing on that strategy and see how the strategy changes. And that can help you kind of get an idea for what the management's doing and how well of a job they are doing. And now I wanna take a look at another company and this one is Crocs. So if you notice Crocs, Crocs actually has an even higher return on equity. Their return on equity is 163%, which looks absolutely incredible. That, that's, that's extraordinarily high levels of return on equity. But now what you've got to consider is take a look at their level of debt and they've got 281% debt. So what I meant ROE is how well a company can generate returns from their equity. But another way that a company can boost those returns is by on more leverage, which means adding debt to their balance sheet. So as you can see in the case of Crocs, taking on more debt has boosted Crocs's ROE, but the problem is that if their revenue slow and their debt burden becomes too large, profitability, which is your earnings, your earnings per share, your net income, profitability is really gonna take a hit on the way down and return on equity, those high levels of 163 are gonna decrease very, very rapidly. And then long-term, if that decline sustains and the company isn't really able to recover from it, and instead of being able to reinvest those earnings back into the company or in growth capital expenditures or something they can do to grow the company, make an acquisition, they're gonna to have to pay it all in interest payments and to, to get rid of a lot of that debt. A company loaded with debt can really sink into trouble, potentially wiping out equity in a worst case scenario, like a bankruptcy. So what you've got to remember is when you're looking at a company's ROE, it's not enough to just stop at the number itself. You got to do some work here. It's not all just looking at one number. You got to dig a little deeper and take a peek at how much of that ROE, how much of those returns are coming from debt. And don't forget to compare the company's net income to its total debt. So what you can see, you can't really see it on MarketSmith, but you can do a Google search. You can look at their 10Ks. Just look at the company's overall net income and look at that overall level of debt. And a good sort of rule of thumb is that you don't really want, it, it's, it is tricky. There are certain situations, but typically you don't want to see that total level of debt 
more than three times their net income. That's just a rule of thumb, not always the case, but that's kind of what I go by. And that's a way to gauge if the current levels are sustainable. So to wrap it up, ROE is sort of your, your compass as an equity investor. It guides you through the highs and lows of the company's performance. And as a savvy investor, you should definitely consider the debt factor and the sustainability of those returns. So next time you're checking out a company's stock, take a look at the ROE and that, that, that's a pretty powerful tool that you can, that you can start using. And there's a reason why of all the ratios and the metrics ROE is on market Smith and it's, it's really one of the most important and it's, it's Warren Buffett's favorite indicator. So, um, definitely something to consider and hope, hope that helps and, uh, looking forward to making that, that short video that, that you guys can watch as well. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. That was very good. Now, I, I, I would like to say it's Warren Buffett's favorite uh, metric because he's an equity investor. That's where his money is. If he was a bond investor lending money, he'd be worried about the debt to equity. I mean, debt to income, right, that Michael was talking about. Now, Michael made a very good point. The debt is crucial to ROE when the market's going up and the stock's making good money and they're making more money than their interest rate. So if they're making 10 or 15% of their money and they're only paying 8% interest, that's leverage. It's making money. However, when it slows down and their sales go down and now it's an albatross, it's like a weight around their neck, right? Now they're losing money and they can lose money fast. So for traders, for you stock nerds, Here's an easy analogy you can think of when you think of leverage. Think about it like trading on margin. When you go on margin, if you have a $100,000 account and you can borrow up to $50,000, so now you invest $150,000, you're paying margin interest 8%. If you're making money in stocks and it's going up, it's great. So your return is higher on that 150 used than if you just invested the 100000 with no debt, no margin. But if you're losing money, you may get a margin call. Just like with the businesses, they may get a mar uh, bankruptcy call. So anyway, that's why you got to be really uh, important. We're going to have that video up pretty soon, hopefully in the next day or two. So check, it's going to be a sh And by the way, Michael is going to do a longer video where he goes and he takes one or two stocks and he's going to go start to finish and show you how he does the fundamentals. And folks, listen, this is hard work. If, if you're doing fundamental analysis and you're not going back five years and pouring through and looking at their stuff and then comparing year over year and then looking now and then looking what the forecasts are going to be going forward and looking how well management is delivering how consistent management is, then you're not doing fundamental. Just looking at the ROE by itself and just looking at the PE, you're a rookie retail investor and you're swimming with sharks. You're going to get your lunch eaten every day of the week. Good financial guys, they know the fundamentals from the last five years, even 10 years, like Michael said. And then they look at all the different and they break down each um, uh, indicator whether it's uh, price to earnings, whether it's ROE, whether it's ROI, it doesn't matter. They break down how that number is derived, not just the number itself. All right, enough said. Now, let's go to the big topic to jure that everybody really wants to know about, and that is, is the market going up or down today right now? And what is it going to do next week? Now, as you know, we don't forecast and there's no such thing as a certain thing. We can only assign probabilities. So with that, Don, what are you seeing right now today? And what are you going to be doing over the weekend to be heading into next week? Well, Dan, you, you said, is the market going up or down? And my answer is yes. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both. Uh, especially since last Friday. So uh, oh my gosh, it yeah. appeared that uh, this is a 15-minute chart of the S&P 500. And uh, we were selling off the middle of last week. And that seemed to come to uh, a, 
seemed like we put in a bottom last Friday where we gapped down, put in the low very quickly after the open and closed at the high of the day. Uh, and the, the level that we bounced at, I, I've been talking about this seven layer burrito of support. Uh, there are multiple support levels, Fibonacci levels, moving averages, uh, stacked one uh, on top of another from the 4300 level up to uh, this 4330-ish level, and then there's one more up at 4344. So we undercut 4334, and then we came to uh, this multiple level of support, and we just stopped going down there. And the analogy I made is think of it as if you were jumping up and down on a quarter-inch thick piece of wood, you're very likely to break it. But if that piece of wood is two inches thick, you're going to have a much harder time. And these multiple levels of support, at least for now, have put in the bottom. And it's a very critical reference point for any further sell-off. So after we put uh, that bottom in, uh, we started making higher highs and higher lows. That's the definition of an uptrend. Uh, but we culminated with a big gap up on Thursday morning on a euphoric reaction to NVIDIA's earnings report. They, for the second quarter in a row, completely blew out earnings and raised expectations and guidance going forward. The problem was we gapped up and immediately failed within the first 30 minutes. And now those higher highs and higher lows have been broken because yesterday and today, we started making lower lows and uh, lower highs relative to the top that was made on Thursday morning. So the answer is yes, the market is going up and down. And the bottom line is it's in a range. Where did we fail here? If we go to a daily chart, you can see right at a very logical point of failure. And that is the 50 day moving average. That's the red line in here. That's a line that we got back above on the last follow through day that we had on the S&P 500, which was March 29th, and we didn't touch it again until we broke it uh, two weeks ago, week and a half ago. And after that, uh, typical technical analysis 101, this went from being a support level where we bounced down, made a run back up. So this is a classic case of what was support turning into resistance. And the good news is that we've got a very clear reference level uh, for highs and lows, the highs being uh, where we peaked Thursday morning, the lows being last Friday's lows. And as long as we ping pong in between here, that's the equivalent of putting in a base uh, in the S&P 500, very similar on the NASDAQ 100. NASDAQ 100 has been a little bit weaker, but the same reference points. Friday's low, last Friday's low, and this Thursday's high after the NVIDIA gap up. Uh, as long as we ping pong in that area, remember the market doesn't get into significant um, trouble unless we break the 200-day moving average. Right below here, we've got the 100-day moving average. A little bit below there, we've got the 150-day moving average. Those are big reference points for the indexes. They frequently look to those levels for support. Now, if they fail at that level, then we'll get more defensive and the market will get weaker and the target uh, exposure that we have to the market will drop down. Right now we've got very little exposure with the expect, with the except, uh, with the, um, except for the uh, SSO position that we have. And we keep that on uh, at least 60% as long as we stay above uh, this, uh, the, and it's via the, sorry, 30% SSO, the equivalent of 60% in the S&P 500. And we keep that on as long as we hold above, uh, this, uh, 100 day moving average. We'll drop it a little bit if we get down to the 150 and then the absolute line in the sand where the market, uh, history has proven no bear market ever occurs as long as you're above the 200 day moving average. So for now, uh, the market's weak. We've reduced support. We've gotten uh, reduced exposure. We've gotten stopped out of uh, a lot of our positions, wrapped up profits and others. Uh, the initial reaction to a euphoric and very healthy earnings report by NVIDIA. In fact, NVIDIA is actually cheaper now than it was before it issued the report, even though the price is lower. Let's bring up the price, uh, the chart of NVIDIA. 
it had uh, that big gap up, uh, but it, it ran right into the 500 level and reversed. Right now it's down uh, trading at 454. So that's only a 5% pullback uh, off of the high. It's still holding the 21 day moving average and the 50 day merge. Now, granted, that's a big disappointment when you see the strongest stock in the market blow earnings out of the water, 101% increase uh, on earnings on a 420%, I'm sorry, 101% increase on sales, 429% increase on earnings. Those are phenomenal numbers. But the fundamentals always look best at the top. And I don't know, we're not saying one way or another whether uh, if NVIDIA put in a top here, but they are the number one player and the number one growth category uh, right now in the market, and that's uh, artificial intelligence. So uh, it's pulling back. It hurts. We got stopped out on some of our positions, some of the newer ads that we had on NVIDIA. We're still holding the position that we took uh, back in this area before they had their big gap up, and we still got about 70% gains on that. Uh, it's going to take a uh, big high volume close below the 50-day moving average on a weekly basis to pry that uh, out of our hands, and that hasn't happened so far. So um, that's what's going on with Nvidia in the overall markets, and you know, we're as long as we're in this trading range on the S&P 500, we're content to just let the market sort uh, sort itself out. We have a very clear reference point that we need to get above from Thursday's open and a clear reference point on the downside from last Friday's low. Uh, and uh, typical of base building is you'll, you know, bounce up and down in that area and then you'll break above that area, try to put the right side of the base in. And this should coincide with uh, leading stocks in the market breaking out of sound bases and uh, heading higher. And that's what we'll be waiting on and looking for. Jackson Hole speech this morning, the market's been all over the place. Uh, let me bring up a five minute chart of the S&P 500 and you can see uh, Powell started speaking here. It spiked down, it spiked up, it spiked lower. It tried to come back. It's, it's all over the place today. There's no edge in a ping pong market like this. Um, and we're just waiting for this to play out. We're waiting for more clarity. We get some more economic data next week with uh, PCE inflation and the jobs report on Friday, and uh, we'll let the market tell us what the next uh, move should be. We're well aware of what a healthy market uh, looks like for growth stocks, and right now this is not one, but it's not, uh, you know, if there's a silver lining, it's the comment that I made, the market does not get into serious trouble unless we break below the 200 day moving average. So for now, it's a it's a five and a half percent pullback uh, from the high. And that's you, you have to be able to live with a, a, a pullback like that if you're going to be an investor in the market. It's quite normal. It's quite healthy, especially after the run that we had up off the low in March. And uh, relative to that, this is just a normal pullback. All right, Don. Well, thank you. Um, one thing I did want to bring up because the what I was talking about, the overlying economic themes were the banking and the commercial real estate industry is meeting headwinds, and that could dampen the whole economy versus technology uh, and AI being a NVIDIA essentially being able to propel the markets and drag the market higher. And who's going to win that? We don't know. We don't make predictions, but we're going to make adjustments no matter what we do. So at Revere, we don't do asset allocation and pie charts. We're going to measure what is happening while it's happening and make adjustments uh, accordingly. Uh, but I had told you about three months ago, four months ago, I did a thing on the banking crisis and the what I was seeing out on the horizon. And I was telling you it was getting pretty nasty. But then the AI news started knocking that off the front page. Here's the bottom line. Here's just the big, big picture. The expenses, banks, rising rates, now they got to pay people a lot more money for their deposits, okay? And they, can you bring up those charts, Don? And then, and then they've locked in long-term rates for their balance sheet. They bought a bunch of stocks. In fact, they had to move them to mark to market so that they didn't have to um, um, they marked the market so they didn't have to put the fair market value on. But look at here. Remember 2008? Remember how bad that was? 
Look at the chart there. Look at the annual bank phasers by total assets. So we've actually had more billions of dollars lost during this year than we did during 2008. Okay. Now, go to the next one, Don, the next chart. This next chart is showing, um, can you blow that up? Is showing the deposit growth. So their, their bankruptcies are going up, their deposits, which means their assets are going down. That's kind of known as a run on the banks, okay, if it gets extreme enough. But look at the second derivative. Look at the slope of the line. Look how negative that's going and how quickly it's going. That's a problem. Okay, the next one. That's the year-over-year -year change in bankruptcy filings. That last big spike was 2008, and now it's starting to creep up again. I'm not calling doom and gloom. I'm just saying keep your eyes on it. Now, the Fed has been very aggressive, and they're aware of this, and they're, they try to manipulate early, earlier than they used to. They're quick at taking action. They've done three things. They gave implied FDIC guaranteed for all deposits, meaning people don't worry. We'll cover you over the two fifty dollars or $500,000 limit. Uh, they gave short-term uh, lending uh, funding program for the banks, and then they uh, they – created, they forced uh, a range, they call them arranged, they forced the weak banks that are about to go bankrupt to be taken over by the big banks. But the fundamental structural problems are here. The Fed created them. The Fed created them with the loose money, and now the Fed is trying to fix them. Here's the question philosophically for the big picture economic, not so much the technical that Don does. Okay. We had a huge, in fact, there's an article Alex, our analyst, uh, I mean, our uh, consultant sent us, Alex Katutis sent us this article. It was a great article. It was talking about inflation in the, in the 70s, how it, 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 it reared its ugly head and popped up and really started getting bad. And then it looked like it was subsiding in 76, 77, and all of a sudden it reignited and got really bad. And that's when Vol uh, Volcker came in and just wiped it out. And then from there, we had the two best decades in the history of the stock market. Okay. Here's the problem. Here's the, the, the tightrope the Fed has to do. They're trying to kill inflation for good, trying to kill inflation or at least tame it. They haven't quite done it yet. But if they raise rates too much more, do you slow down the economy too much to where you go too deep into a, a bad recession and then really kill the economy? So they're trying to slow the economy enough so that we kill inflation and demand. And then they want to step, take the foot off the throat of the economy and let it go again for the next uh, economic cycle. Will they be able to engineer that? I don't know. I'll know it when I see it. I'll know if it's working out. How will I know? Price. Price is truth. All right, Don, you got anything else before I close up? We good? Well, yeah, Ted's got 10 charts to go through. Oh, Teddy Bear. All right. Well, t I, hey, Teddy Bear's girlfriend came in to visit him this weekend, so I just assumed he was going to be out of town. She's in law school somewhere, and so I figured Ted was going to take the day off. All right, Ted, let's hear it. Now he's showing up for work. Damn. Oh, man, I'm Love proud it. of you, man. I, I like that. That shows resolve. <laughs> It's so not it's not Teddy look. Ten charts this week. It's it's like Spinal Tap speakers. Ted actually has eleven charts. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's take a look at what is happening underneath the markets. Don gave the, a beautiful rundown on the price and volume analysis of the indexes, and so remember that these are secondary indicators, but you can definitely give us surgical analysis if we couple them with price and volume analysis of individual stocks and the indexes. So the first one. Oh, Don, can you bring up the advanced decline ones? This is the net highs and lows. Yeah, so the first one will be the S&P 500 weekly chart um, with its advanced decline line and the NISI advanced decline line. And so I've drawn, I've drew uh, blue upper trend lines and then red downtrend lines. And so as you can see, we broke the lines.
and just looking for this advanced decline change in trend. So we would like to see it get above those red lines. The next one is the NASDAQ advanced decline line. It's currently sitting at lows. And although if you based your investing and trading on this indicator, it would have caused you to miss out the entire rally this year. Um, but anyways, it still shows how weak breath is overall in the NASDAQ composite. And perhaps it, it is an earlier hint that the market may not be quite ready yet for a sustained uptrend. And maybe we need more basing and for stocks to, to get in gear. The third chart is the S&P 500 net highs and lows. As you can see, new highs diminished and we have net lows, but it, it's, it's still fair. It's not severe. It's, 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 it's on the S&P 500, it's definitely minor. Um, we're holding support levels as Don talked about that whole, like, um, what do you say? It's the bundle of support. The, what, what, what was the, the burrito, burrito. <laughs> the burrito, seven burrito Ted. <laughs> the seven layer burrito. Um, so our, nothing our too shows severe are informative and delicious. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to use that for a line informative and delicious. That's right. That's right. So the NASDAQ is the, is a little bit different. Um, it's a tech centric index. And as you can see, um, along with net, along with new highs diminishing, we have an expansion and new lows. And then if you go, if you go to the bottom pa panel, um, net definitely, but still, still not very, very comparable to the bear market that we just had, or even the, the March through April period. Um, the next one is the Nizzy. And so, as you can see, I, I circled with uh, in blue, the oversold territory. So now we're back in that oversold territory. And of course you can stay down here for a while, just like the, the area on the left. And then what I did was I also circled green areas. And so what I want to see and what we want to see is that for this indicator to hook back up, at least see some black again, and especially get back over that 10 day moving average line, which is the tent, which is the blue line and that, that in a way is like an on and off switch, but of course we don't just based our, based our movements just on one indicator alone. Um, the next one is the NASI. This is like the sister indicator to the NISI, but for the NASDAQ. And this is almost, I mean, this is like dropping almost at a six o'clock angle, which is definitely not what we want to see. It's back and oversold. So, I mean, people went from extreme greed to extreme fear quite quickly. We would definitely like to see this hook up and get back above that 10 day moving average line to be a quote unquote on signal or buy signal. The next one is the S and P 500% of stocks above the 50 day moving average, 150 day moving average and 200 day moving average. And just like the advanced decline line, we can see that broke the upper trend lines. <clears throat> and that is precisely where this correction pretty much began. And so now I, I would like to see the change in trend of these indicators get above that red downtrend line that I drew. Further, we have the NASDAQ um, percent of stocks above the 50 day, 150 day and 200 day. And just like the SP 500, we broke the upper trend lines. Now we want to see it get back above the downtrend lines. So moving on to some sentiment, um, CNN fear and greed, pretty much the same of same place as where we talked about last time in that neutral area it actually came down a little bit from the greedy area. So that's what we want to see. Um, these pictures were taken this morning. Uh, when I checked last night, we are, we were actually in the fear territory. So that is definitely what we want to see from a sentiment perspective, because I mean, the, the markets are known to climb a wall of worry. So if, if everyone's bold up in extreme greed, there's really no other buyers left. The next sentiment indicator we look at is the AAI um, sentiment survey. And from last week, bullish, bullish numbers continue to drop and bearish numbers rise. We're both um, below historical averages for the bullish readings and above historical averages for the bearish readings. And so that is definitely the, the direction that we'd like to see us go towards. And pre, like months and months ago, um, bearish readings were at an all-time high. Well, not an all-time high, but at historical highs, like at 50, 55%. And that's pretty much where we kind of started carving out a bottom and making this last rally that we saw from June to July. And the final one is the NAM, N-A-A-I-M, 
Connor like talked about these indicators last week in more detail, but as you can see, like look at the sharp decline. We're price, like price on all the indexes are well above where we are at the beginning of 2023. And this the sentiment reading would kind of which kind of gauges what man what which gauges what money managers are doing is below the start of 2023. So it just shows like how bearish or kind of how risk off money managers are at this current point. And then so some conclusions, breath is poor right now. Um, we have a downtrend advanced decline line. We have negative net highs and lows. The Nizzy and Nazi are downtrends and there, there aren't that many stocks above long-term key movement averages. And without that, it's, it's really hard to have a, like a sustainable um, uptrend. Sentiment has cooled off significantly. So we would like to see fear, more fear come into the markets and then look for perhaps price confirmation and support volatility come down and stock setups from proper sound bases as Don talked about. Um, and until then, like position sizing smaller and less total exposure is definitely warranted. So that's, that's all I got from breath this week. Excellent, Ted. I think the important takeaway is that these secondary indicators all, uh, taking separately are not that important, but when you put them together, they paint a picture and that picture is a reflection uh, of what you see in the market. And it's when the boat gets too full to one side or the other side uh, that it tends to tip and snap back the other way. And we saw that with mm -hmm. the, the high exposure reading on the sentiment standpoint and the high overbought reading on the NASI and the new highs and new lows. And now we're seeing just the opposite. And uh, arguably you can say it's darkest before the dawn. These things uh, get to a certain point and they just can't stretch the rubber band down any further, just like they couldn't stretch it up any further. And we snap back in the opposite direction. And those are the, yeah. uh, the signs that we're always looking for. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And Dan, Don, that'll could... wrapping up from the depth side. Okay. Go ahead, Ted. And, and Don, I, I can make it Teddy 12 charts. If I can, um, take your data with hey. the, the percentage of stocks above the 21 EMA that you track. Um, I can Excellent. talk about those it. too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of the, that's the result of some of the sector work that we do over the weekends. Oh, Thanks say, so, so, so question, so question to implement the, I mean, I know you, those are secondary indicators and you don't use those in and of themselves, but taken as a whole, it's basically saying that breadth is getting a little more negative. People are getting covering up a little bit and getting defensive but it also is a contrarian indicator because once they get too defensive, it may snap back. So the question is, how do you play that? Do you Are you watching and staying defensive until you start seeing vol buying volume come in and then takes positions? Or what is the mechanical process for that? It's a, it's a combination. It's very similar to how we stopped piling in uh, at the top here because of how stretched sentiment was to the bullish side, just right. the same way when you get stretched to the opposite direction on sentiment to the bearish side, we won't be piling on uh, from a bearish standpoint. What you, what we would expect to see is um, an extreme reading one way or the other. We haven't gotten to the extremes yet. Uh, if things are gonna get really bad, uh, what you would see is a kind of what we saw this week where you get a little bit of a relief up to a certain point and then it reverses back lower. And that failure into that 50 day moving average uh, was kind of in, uh, expected. And now uh, that failed and we're continuing to pull back and those numbers are being reflected in these secondary indicators. But um, it's, it's also important to note that when you're in a crisis, and we're not in any kind of a crisis right now. That's when things get to the extreme, and the it, it, it there's there uh, the sentiment indicators are almost uh, not helpful because they'll continue to keep going lower. And it's when you see something like this last October, when things are just getting incredibly bad. Uh, you're at the bottom. You get more bad news. You gap down, and the market makes a massive reversal to the upside. Uh, you look for a that sort of a price capitulation event uh, in conjunction with massive bearish sentiment. The, the low that we saw for bearishness coincided with this October low. 
or I mean the high that we saw for bearishness coincided with this October low. Uh, you'll see that from some of the charts that Ted showed how red we were uh, on the new lows, and you just can't stretch the rubber band any further down to the downside. Uh, we didn't reach any sort of a capitulation level like that here, which is why uh, we're not piling back in thinking we go back to the upside and we just ran into this uh, very logical place to, we had a logical place to stop going down. We've also had a logical place to stop going up. So now we just let the indicators play themselves out and look for something that something could be a follow through day to the upside where we break out, which we were on the watch for just yesterday but it failed miserably. So that tells us we haven't gotten enough bearishness. We haven't uh, wrung all the, the optimism out of the market. Plus we were waiting for what Jay Powell was gonna say and the market's been all over the place after he meant today, we've been down as much as a half percent and up uh, as much as three quarters of a percent. So uh, we're just letting the market ping pong around this area. We trade less uh, and because we just don't wanna avoid getting chopped up and we uh the the strength will be revealed in the pullback and those are the signals that we're watching for now which what are the stocks that are acting like basketballs underwater where when the pressure on the market comes off they're going to explode to the upside and those are the ones that we want to be in okay that, that's my so folks uh putting my don turpiter on in a little bit more plain english he's going to be looking for further pullback to some logical support area and then he's going to be looking for strong vol high buying volume to start taking more aggressive positions back in and getting back in aggressively until then he's going to do it very uh judiciously very small increments one-off stocks he's not going to be taking large exposure all right and folks. we would prefer to see that we'd prefer to see that coincide with a, a pickup in bearishness get a little bit more bearish and right. a hookup in the nazi rsi that's one of our uh, relative strength indicator yes yes Okay. Yep. So net, when everybody's super bullish, but the RSI's ticking up and we start getting volume, that's going to be your time. And it's not when it's time to buy, it's not going to feel right. It won't feel right. right. All right, folks, is. listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, just send them to revereasset.com. Up in the right-hand corner, there is a subscribe button. They can just put their email and name and email in. We won't reach out to them or spam them anyway. It's up to them to reach out to us if they want a complimentary portfolio view, a stock they want talked about, or a topic they want discussed on the podcast. And by the way, right next to the subscribe is a contact us button. They can just stick their email address in there and say it'll go directly to my email and they can ask a question or if they want to learn about be potentially becoming a client, we'd love you to rejoin the Revere team. Uh, we're as transparent as we can be. We put Don puts out a daily market insight video. Every night the market is open. It'll be in your inbox in the evening. It talks about the three time frames, short, long, and midterm time frames of all the major indices. And then he talks about individual stocks and stocks we're actually doing in the portfolio. I've had many prospects who became clients told me when they became a client and invested in Grotection, their, their, the newsletter came alive because now they really got it. They really saw in real time what Don was talking about on his videos. Folks, you can uh, call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH or you can email any of us, dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com or Michael, Ted or Connor at Revere asset.com have a great weekend and be safe and we'll talk to you next week on your money because it's not how much you make in the markets it's how much of that you can keep
Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.